both your work and my work in bringing games and comics to bear on research that we're doing in the Institute of Medical Science and the Department of Biology. I think people are just starting to see the incredible potential of incorporating play and creativity into the acquisition of serious knowledge and even quantitative, factual knowledge. Things like comics and games use a whole different part of the brain. They harness people's creativity and engagement in a really different way than more traditional kinds of learning in undergraduate education or in patient education. And there's an incredible power in that. And I think people are starting to see that there's a fun element, and that's the power of them, but that doesn't make them trivial, in fact. That makes them incredibly creative, powerful vehicles for communication and for learning. Comics gaming, visualizations, healthcare, learning, and communication integrated via visual media in science and medicine. On this edition of You to the U, we will explore all of these concepts with another trip down the hall to the Biomedical Communications Department here at U of T Mississauga. You will hear a familiar voice, that of Professor Jody Jenkinson, whom I interviewed last year on the podcast, and she will be joined by her colleagues, Professor Shelley Wall and graduate student Andrea Gauthier. These three academics are helping me kick off season two of View to the U. And this year in 2018, we will feature women in academia at UTM from a range of our 15 departments. In this first episode, we cover a bit of Jody Jenkinson's work, which includes looking at how the design of animations and interactive tools may be used effectively for learning. But we also find out more about Shelley Wall's work in comics and graphic medicine in relation to visual communication and Andrea Gauthier's exploration of employing games to improve learning outcomes. Both media, comics and gaming, are not the low art or recreational diversions they may have been regarded in the past. Both are having a moment, particularly in pedagogy and research. Last October 2017, the Games Institute based at the University of Waterloo, yes, that's right, a Games Institute here at a Canadian university, and it's been around since 2011, hosted a media literacy panel made up of gaming scholars that was an exploration of how play and gaming develops critical thinking and digital literacy skills. And the proliferation of the graphic novel as a genre over the past couple decades is proving that it is a medium with longevity. On an episode of the 99% Invisible podcast that just dropped January 23rd, 2018, and an episode that I cannot recommend highly enough, cartoonist and theorist Scott McCloud talks about his scholarly definition of comics as, and this is a quote, juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence, end of quote. He says that pictures are text, pictures are meaning, that they are not just illustrations, that every visual decision has consequences, and that good visual communication should speak and be silent. These are all statements that would no doubt resonate with today's guests. Hello, and welcome to View to the U, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. Jody Jenkinson is an associate professor and Shelley Wall is an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Communications at UTM. Andrea Gauthier is a graduate student from the Master of Science in Biomedical Communications program. 
Today's interview starts with an excerpt of Jody's past interview on View to the U from August 2017. And to hear the podcast in its entirety, please visit our SoundCloud page. Research in a BMC lab is really focused on visual communication and how that impacts learners. And so much research and learning is devoted to text and imagery or animation in text or interactivity in text, but it doesn't focus on the individual components that go into making a visualization and how those can be manipulated to either hinder or foster learning. So in my research lab, we really do look at how the design of animations and the design of interactive tools may be used effectively for learning. And again, it focuses as much on the perceptual aspects of learning, how color and tension cueing devices like using arrows or other devices to direct the viewer's attention, how those things affect learning in different learning contexts. I think because visual assets are so complex and detailed, it's often difficult to tease out exactly what it is that might be drawing one's attention or what it is that's contributing to the learning. So we use a number of different research methods to get at that. So we use eye tracking to look at where the viewer's visual attention is focused and also things like pupil dilation to determine cognitive load in viewing the material. We also use verbal protocols, so we get viewers to think aloud while they're watching animations or using interactive tools. And then we use traditional experimental test instruments like pre and post tests. As well, we conduct focus groups with students. You know, often you'll conduct an experiment and, you know, the results might not be quite as compelling as you think, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other questions, deeper questions you can be asking. So we'll conduct focus groups often as a follow-up to studies to try and really characterize students' understanding of things, the impact of the visuals, their misconceptions. That's a big factor. What we do is really looking at student misconceptions around life sciences education. So I'm just going to ask you to state your name and then also a sort of brief overview of what you do for your research. My name is Andre Gautier. I am a PhD student at the Institute of Medical Sciences in biomedical communication specifically. And my research looks at how we can leverage game design to facilitate learning in the medical and life sciences. So I'm looking at how games can enhance education, facilitate learning in various domains. Specifically, I'm interested in failure and the role that failure plays in learning. And games are actually a really great vesicle to encourage failure in a positive way. So my research dovetails nicely with Jody's. Jody is my supervisor, and her research looks quite a bit at students' understanding of randomness. Although they can describe molecules as moving randomly, and they understand the principles of Brownian motion, their understanding breaks apart when they're trying to extend that to cells and cellular events. So I decided that I'd investigate negativity and the role of negativity in learning or conceptual change in this area. And specifically, games can really expose how students think. If you engage them in an interactive simulation, then they're going to be performing actions that they think are correct to achieve a certain goal. So if you let them act on their current understanding and then they see that the system doesn't respond in the way that 
they're expecting, then it reveals the misconception to them. And in that way, they're failing, and then they can start to build a new understanding on top of that failure. So that's the premise of what I'm doing. And there has been much research showing that if you just get students to interact in a simulation without getting them to confront their misconceptions head on, then the same change doesn't occur. So we've been comparing students who are engaging in a game that specifically tries to get them to fail versus a control interactive simulation, molecular simulation. And in comparison to a baseline group, we're seeing significant change in the gaming group, whereas we don't see that same amount of change in the control group. So it harkens to the specific benefits of failure in the game. Are you actually designing the game? Yeah, so, well, we've had a couple of BMC graduate students involved in the design and the development of, it's called Mall Worlds, built in Unity. And I'm Shelley Wall. I'm an assistant professor in the Biomedical Communications Program and the Department of Biology here at UTM. And my main area of research right now is actually in comics and medicine, how comics as a mode of visual communication can be used in healthcare and in medical education. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into this field? Because I, I think you started out more like at OCAD or something, like yeah. the arts. Yeah, yeah, I started, I did a doctorate in English literature and brought a lot of feminist theory into that doctoral research in a past life <laughs> and, uh, and then went to OCAD, then came into this program and ended up working on a module for sick kids about intersex conditions, which tapped into but also really propelled my interest in gender-based analysis and practice. I've always been interested in, in women's health and how gender works in biomedical representations. Right now, I'm working more, I'm drawing on my background as a literary scholar, and I'm really interested in, I'm still interested in gender, but I'm working specifically in narrative, how narrative works in visual communication, and narrative specifically in the form of comics, which is a growing field called graphic medicine, which is sort of at the intersection of health humanities, literary study, medical education, patient education. So all the different areas where visual narrative combining text and image can be deployed either as a way of, for medical students, for example, to read graphic memoirs of illness, to humanize the illness experience for them, to bring in that element of the individual of lived experience to kind of complement all the epidemiological data that they're confronting, or using comics as a way of transcending language barriers or comprehension barriers in patient education. So that's, yeah. I find that's, it so yeah. fascinating that you start out in literary studies, because I, to me, when I hear literary studies, I think so much about text, and then now there's this component of comics and graphic. Was it a real shift for you then to shift to comics or graphic novels? It was a shift in that I thought I had left behind my humanities right. hat. <laughs> and so then to discover that there is a huge role for the humanities in biomedicine. I mean, health humanities, medical humanities, whatever you call them are rapidly, the importance of that is really being recognized now. It was sort of a shift back to think, oh, I can use all of this experience that I have in narrative analysis and literary theory and bring it to bear on work that actually then plays a role in clinical practice and in the patient experience. So it was actually incredibly exciting to kind of see those things stitched together again. And with comic books, was that something that you were drawn to earlier on? Well, you know, I read comics as a kid and then rediscovered them as an adult after I discovered graphic novels. Yeah. Have gaming always been sort of an interest of yours? 
Yeah, definitely. So I grew up on games. I was in the N64 generation. I've been playing games my entire life. I had a bit of a hiatus when I went off to undergrad. And so it's a real pleasure now to be back into it as a PhD student. But kind of throughout my undergrad career and master's, games have always come in in some shape or form. So when I was in undergrad, I developed this game for the library. They do these facilitated study groups. So I was a facilitated study group leader for a course called Scientific and Technical Terminology. And so I developed a board game based on Cranium. I called it Brainium, where it's essentially just a trivia thing, but it really got people in the course engaged in coming to these groups. And the coordinator for the FSGs uh, said it was the most well-attended study group in history. That may have changed by now. That was several years ago. But uh, it kind of communicates the power that games can have. So that was really cool. That was a very strong thing for me to get into the games research. When I came into BMC, I looked at gaming in anatomy learning. So as a BMC student, first year, you take a very intensive anatomy course. And the thing that sparked my idea for a game in that area was that our anatomy course instructor, Dr. Wiley at the time, he said, you know, the best way to study vascular anatomy is to imagine you're in one location in the circulatory system and you need to get to another place in the circulatory system and try to name each vessel as you go along. And when you stagger, then you know that that's where you need to develop your knowledge or that's where the study needs to be. So I built a game based on that concept called Vascular Invaders. And my first study experience or research experience was with that, looking at student usage of a game, volunteer usage over the course of a week before their exam, and to see how their studying habits changed when given a game versus given a similar control application. So that was my master's experience, and that I've just built on that in the PhD realm with uh, mall worlds in terms of molecular randomness and helping students understand that. M-O-L, mall worlds, as in molecular world. Um, I love this idea, though, about the gaming thing, because I went to an ROP fair. They had all these students that were involved with these research opportunity programs. But same thing, as a totally different thing from the usual posters, these students had worked on creating this. It was a board game, but uh, it was to take to, um, I think, high schools and maybe grade schools but again, getting students to learn in this other, more sort of fun way. I feel like no matter what the game, no matter for what course it might be for, it's all about failure. No matter what, whether you're designing specifically because you know that you want failure to teach something or to facilitate conceptual change, no matter how you design a game, it's always going to contain an element of failure, and that's going to be kind of the driving factor behind its success, building positive failure. This has never occurred to me before, but both your work and my work in bringing games and comics to bear, you know, on research that we're doing in the Institute of Medical Science and the Department of Biology. I think people are just starting to see the incredible potential of incorporating play and creativity into the acquisition of serious knowledge and even quantitative factual knowledge. Things like comics and games use a whole different part of the brain. They harness people's creativity and engagement in a really different way than more traditional kinds of learning in undergraduate education or in patient education. And there's an incredible power in that. And I think people are starting to see that there's a fun element and that's the power of them, but that doesn't make them trivial. In fact, that makes them incredibly creative, powerful vehicles for communication and for learning. And I think a much more memorable 
yeah. experience. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the first graphic novels that I read was most by Spiegelman. There's certain things that stuck with me, and it's telling a very serious story, but in such a creative and different kind of way that I can't say enough about that as a medium to communicate yeah. We did a survey with an undergraduate biology class where the professor has integrated a series of animations, very coarse curriculum aligned animations. And then we asked how those affected textbook use in the course. And a vast majority of students said they just stopped using the textbook completely or significantly reduced their use of the textbook. These media are fantastic, but they do have, I think, some consequences yeah. reading wise anyways. Well, there's still that issue of quality control. It's yeah. not like, oh, any animation will, that, oh, absolutely. will do, yeah. of course. And that's what a lot of your research is about, right, is what's yeah. the quality yeah. of the stimulus. I'm sure that's always a consideration. But scholarly discourse, too, takes different forms, like curating an exhibit instead of writing an article. Coming up, Women in Academia. Jody Shelley and Andrea talk about some of the challenges and opportunities they have encountered, as well as some of the mentors who have inspired them in their respective academic careers along the way. I opened up this next part of the interview with Jody Shelley and Andrea to ask about any obstacles or challenges they may have faced, gender-based or otherwise, but also if they have words of encouragement for others looking to pursue a career in academia, as well as any notable mentors who may have inspired them over the course of their work. I think the bigger challenge in our field has always been operating within such a highly specialized field. You're struggling so much to make people understand what it is that you actually do and that it's an applied field, which within a research environment can be an additional challenge. So we already have all of these challenges lined up before us. I can't speak for Shelley or for Andrea, but I don't feel that I've encountered the kinds of challenges that women typically do. Having said that, it's interesting to me that if you look at the men in our program, with the exception of one, they all have children. But the women who have come through our program as faculty, none of them do. And I think that's curious. Who is one day a week? But And my great mentors, Linda Wilson-Powell's, Margot Mackay, they've n- neither of them have had children. And I think that's a bit telling. In Canada, that is the case, that it's predominantly female. I think it's um, a field that you can go into and, and still plan a family. Is it also the case a lot of the students coming into our area have backgrounds in biology? And just in general, there's this 70-30 split, at least in Canadian undergraduate biology courses. That's a good point. So it could between be women it, and men. between women and men, oh. that generally 70% are female. So it could be a, a bit of a mixture of both of those uh, factors. In the United States in our field, though, the, I think the programs are dominated by men, and the faculty as well. And the profession as a whole, thinking about Association of Medical Illustrators meetings, it seems pretty gender-balanced, I'd say. I agree, yeah. yeah. But one of the opportunities that has meant a great deal to my career in BMC has been gender-based research. And so bringing a feminist perspective to bear on looking at communication, at visual communication in medicine and in medical education. And so in that regard, some of my mentors have been people like Jillian Einstein, who was running the Collaborative Graduate Program in Women's Health and does a lot of gender-based research 
into neuroscience and other aspects of healthcare, and Pat McKeever, who's a researcher at Holman Bloorview. So a lot of really incredible women who work at that kind of intersection of feminism, gender studies, healthcare, communication. I started out my undergrad in scientific and technical illustration at Sheridan College. And actually, that brings me to a mentor, uh, Catherine Chorney, who's... Yes, we're all cheering in the background. Yeah. 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 Catherine uh, Chorney is a graduate from the Biomedical Communications. I think she was in Jody's year, actually, graduation year. classmates. And she's a teacher at Sheridan. She teaches uh, scientific illustration specifically. And she was the one to kind of introduce our class to the field of medical illustration. And so that's what sparked my interest right from year one when we did human anatomy. And I look back at those illustrations and they're absolutely horrible, but uh, that really propelled me on my journey towards medical illustration, preparing a portfolio and really directing my future studies towards getting into BMC. So yes, she was kind of pivotal in my entire career path. And so you were sort of representing our grad student today, and I just wondered if you could speak a little bit about um, if you faced any obstacles, you're relatively new in your academic career, but also, and this is something I want to ask all three of you, but, you know, what sort of tips you might have for people who are just kind of embarking on or thinking about an academic career, what you could say to sort of give them some encouragement? Uh, I don't know if I've faced obstacles specifically towards myself being female. I think those are maybe yet to come. If I think about having children in in the near future, I don't really know if it's best to get a a full-time job and be able to go on maternity leave or if you squeeze it in between research contracts, how that all works. And I'm not sure if there's actually resources available at the university to help people deal with that. But as we were discussing, none of the female faculty members have gone through that process. So, so there are no there, there are no examples to follow. I'm sure that there are plenty of mothers currently teaching. So, When I think about the women who have mentored me, they've been incredibly sort of focused and tenacious women. When in particular, I'm thinking about Linda Wilson-Powell's. But I'm not sure that there was a healthy work-life balance there. And if, if that were the advice I would give someone like Andrea... Make sure you maintain that healthy balance. You can be focused and achieve things without losing sight of the wider perspective. Just a shout out in this next bit that I referenced the Raw Talk podcast from U of T's Faculty of Medicine from an episode last year that featured women in STEM. Actually, I think that came up in the Raw Talk, uh, but just how women aren't good at delegating and also, you know, letting the dust build up underneath the bed. Like, something's got to give sometimes, right, for us. That's so true. Dust is our friend. (laughs) It's also a larger cultural issue in academia where it's hard to give yourself permission to have that kind of balance. In BMC, I think we're incredibly lucky that the kind of the culture within our program recognizes that as an example of something we were talking about before we started recording, Mm -hmm. the kind of... The fact that women take on a lot of the emotional labor in families and sort of at the, not at the other end, but further along in the kind of life trajectory than Andrea, I and I know Jody, we've, we've looked after elderly parents and have been incredibly lucky that our director, that Nick Woolridge, has been completely understanding about how not only does that take time, but it also it saps your intellectual and emotional energy for a period. But that that's a part of life, and it's a really important thing to be able to give yourself over to um, yeah, that's without very feeling true. like you're going to lose your job because you felt like you had to attend to your family. 
Yeah, that's so true. If I can speak to Andrea's gifts, her many gifts, I think in many ways Andrea is a mentor to grad students in our own program, and they see what she's doing and the exciting research that she's doing. And it makes them realize that there is life beyond BMC and that it doesn't necessarily mean going right into industry. And so I think it's really good for students to see that. In terms of women in academia, I think that's another way in which we're kind of anomalous in that this is, for most people, it's a professional master's degree preparing people for professional life outside the academy. And so pursuing this graduate degree and then staying in the academy, it's not the kind of normal trajectory that I think that a lot of graduate students in research programs are kind of assuming is going to be in their future. And it'd be really great if more BMC master's grads went into the PhD stream because that's the only way the field will ever advance in the research realm. When I ask about mentors and role models, Shelley is quick to respond. I have to say, and I'm probably speaking for Andrea too, that Jody has been a role model. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> With regards to Jody as mentor, Andrea added later on that Jody has been a mentor to many biomedical communication students because she is one of the first faculty members in the field to perform empirical research into why they do what they do, why they make the design decisions that they do, and that, quite notably, Jody is one of the first biomedical researchers to investigate how different design decisions actually affect learning, which is important to advance the field both academically and professionally. Shelley also added that Jody is a dedicated teacher and a sought-after research supervisor. She and Andrea, as supervisor and PhD candidate, demonstrated the possibilities of doctoral-level research in their field, a highly significant first for the academic discipline of biomedical communications. As a peer, Jody is always raising the bar higher, and she does this all in addition to service work, public outreach, while being a lovely, calm, funny, approachable human being, and someone that Shelley is honored to call a friend. I can tell you from working down the hall from BMC, and from an outsider's perspective, you definitely feel the department's sense of community, collegiality, and the respect they have for each other as they work together, either on their own projects or in collaboration. I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's show. I would especially like to thank my three guests, Jody Jenkinson, Shelley Wall, and Andrea Gauthier for coming in to speak about their work in the BMC program and for bearing with me as I tried my first attempt at a multi-person interview. A big thanks for also helping me to kick off this new season in such a great way. Thank you to the Office of the Vice Principal of Research for their support, for everyone who has been helping to promote this podcast, and for all the great feedback. Special thanks to U of T's Bulletin Brief and specifically to editor Veronica Zaretsky for support and promotion of the podcast. Thank you to Tim Lane for his tunes and support. Thank you.